go. So uh, good morning again. It's the fourth Sunday of Advent, candles one, two, three, four. We talked in the last few weeks about Advent being a number of different things historically. Uh, among other things, it is remembering, uh, remembering the ways that the Jewish people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years looked forward to the person, the special person whom God would send to them to rescue them, to save them, to help them, to lead them. It is also celebrating, Advent is, celebrating very much the coming of that particular special person whom we know to be Jesus 2,000 years ago, whose birth we celebrate. And third, it is eagerly waiting and intentionally watching for Jesus coming again, which he said he would, to establish his kingdom, to uh, judge both the living and the dead or the quick and the dead, uh, to establish a kingdom that would have no end. So that's a lot of what uh, Advent is about, has been about historically. Remembering, celebrating, and waiting and watching all at the same time. Along with that, historically, the church has also considered Advent a time of particular devotion. So uh, focusing in on uh, Jesus maybe more than we normally do, uh, that celebrating, that remembering, that waiting, and that watching, and practicing the way of Jesus along with that in particular or special ways. Some of that's done through confession, some repentance. We've talked about in past weeks how, how Advent has been a time of contrition historically, sort of like Lent, not so much anymore in our world, uh, but historically in the church, and a time to practice confession, repentance, self-denial, sacrificial giving. We're gonna talk about one of those at the end of uh, this message this morning. So we'll loop back to that before we do that uh, so that we get started, let's pray. Uh, because repetition is sometimes good for me and maybe sometimes helpful for some of you, I'm gonna uh, go with Howard Thurman's Advent prayer again to get us going and try to slow down so that as Jeff helped us earlier, uh, we can pray attentively. Let's pray. Holy God, may the sounds of Advent stir a longing in your people. Come again to set us free from the dullness of routine and the poverty of imaginations. Break the patterns which bind us to small commitments and to the stale answers we have given to questions of no importance. Let the advent trumpet blow. Let the walls of our defenses crumble and make a place in our lives for the freshness of your love. Well lived in the spirit and still given to all who know their need and dare receive it. Amen. So for the third time during Advent this morning, we're gonna spend some time in the first chapter of the first gospel, Matthew. Three weeks ago, Jomo led us through a deep dive into Joseph, the father or the stepfather of Jesus, helping us to think about what it must have been like for Joseph to be the father or the stepfather of Jesus, especially given that his wife, he, uh, he had not yet had union with, and yet she was pregnant, and all of the expectations that were attached to that historically in his genealogy and going forward about having a son who would be an heir and the complexities of that. Last Sunday morning, we looked at how some of the gospel of God and Christ is embedded in the genealogy with Jesus, which is found in the first 17 chap 
17 verses of Matthew's gospel. This morning we're going to pick up uh, at verse 18 where we left off last week, uh, focusing largely this morning on one verse and really in some ways one word and one idea in that. So here we go. Listen closely. This is the word of God, Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married. His mother uh, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, he was a righteous person, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from this sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And Joseph gave him the name Jesus. Jesus. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But you may have noticed that Matthew continues in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet, the virgin will be with child. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God's with us. And what does that mean? The question is that I have always asked was, was the angel confused? Would it be Jesus or would it be Emmanuel? Or was Jesus his birth name and Emmanuel his nickname? Was Jesus his official name and Emmanuel just what his family and friends would call him? How did that work? Reasonable questions to me as an inquirer. This morning we're going to talk about Jesus. On Saturday, on Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about Emmanuel. But now for Jesus. What's in a name? When it comes time to name their kids, people often choose names they simply like. Many of us have done that. Or names that are popular at the time, many of us have done that. Or names that are unique, highly unique, many of us have done that. Or names that fit a particular subculture in which we belong. Over the course of my life, I've known an Asher, and a Bubba, and a Butch, and a Cade, and a Dakota, and a Duke, and an Evangeline, Hercules, Latoya, Levi, and a Wellington. All names given by parents for a variety of different reasons. Karen and I decided to name our four kids uh, between uh, each of their first name and their middle name, each of our kids has a name that comes from the scriptures and a name that comes from family. Each of our kids has, as one of their two names at least, a name that belonged to one of their grandparents and a name that also is grounded in scripture because that's who we wanted them to be. And we also were strategic enough that each of them has, as the first vowel in their first name, the letter A to match both of their parents who also had the letter A as the first vowel in each of their names, which is kind of sick. <laughs> I admit. And there's more, and I could go down a little bit more. I'm not going to about our naming process. My point is that children have often given names with particular meanings. They are, they have been, 
And such was certainly the case in first century Judaism, Jewish culture, where a name was ordinarily much more than something randomly picked from a book of baby names, Jewish first century edition. Names often had specific meanings according to their heritage, their family line, what they wanted in from for their child or what they sensed God wanted in for and from their child. And while there were lots of great, powerful, noble, lovely, handsome, historically significant names available to Mary and Joseph, the angel says Jesus. The angel says Jesus. Jesus was a pretty common name in first century Judaism, not so common in uh, Western culture, American culture today. It comes in at number 170 among boys' names last year as the most popular or not so popular. And most of those are probably Jesus. The Greek Jesus or Jesus had been adopted as the Greek rendering for the Hebrew Yehoshua or Yeshua, or for us reading backwards, simply Joshua, which were connected etym etymologically to the Hebrew word save and the Hebrew noun salvation, which belonged way back in Hebrew history, deep in the Old Testament to Joshua, son of Nun. You remember the first Joshua in the Bible, whom God used to save his people, God's people from the Gentile nations around them. So Jesus, Jesus in Greek, Yehoshua, Yeshua, Joshua, save, salvation. He saves, God saves, Jesus saves, he saves, Jesus saves. When he was a boy, my mother's brother carved this little woodworking piece and gave it to his mother, my grandmother. And all the time that I was growing up, this was on the dresser in grandma's bedroom in her mobile home and then in her little government subsidized for older people duplex. It always sat on the dresser. I was always kind of fascinated by it. It was broken in places then just exactly as it still is now, that hasn't happened over time. It was always like that when I knew it and saw it. And I was fascinated by it when she passed away and we sort of were divvying up things. I said, there are two things that I'd like if nobody else is interested. One was this, Jesus saves. But what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus was frugal? Jesus was not a big spender. Instead, he saved? Probably not. But what did it mean? As a young boy, I didn't really know. I had this sense that saving was good. And so if Jesus saves, Jesus is probably good too. And yet, what did that and what does that mean? Well, first, it means, and the name given to Joseph and Mary's son by an angel means that Jesus saves not coins, not dollars, not bottle caps. Jesus saves people. He may be a fiscal conservative, I don't know, though based on his parable that we know is the parable of the prodigal son, 
or the lost son, which should be known as the parable of the extravagant father or the generous father, I would say that Jesus, though he may save, is also quite a spendthrift, quite generous with heaven's resources. Jesus saves, but Jesus saves people, people. Jesus saves, he keeps safe, he preserves, he protects, he delivers, he heals. That basket of verbs are all valid translations of the Greek word sozo that we translate here and often as saves. He saves, he heals, he preserves, he protects, he delivers, he keeps safe people. And then there's the matter of prepositions to and for and from. I love prepositions. They're so rich. They can change the main or main meaning of all kinds of words and sentences and ideas. There, Jesus saves people to. Jesus saves people to serve. This is a core principle of Reformed Christian thought. People are not saved in order to sit in lazy boy chairs or on thrones and watch endless hours of World Cup games, though that's really fun. Congratulations, Argentina. Maybe you've gotten the pop-up on your phone. But we don't find the future outer space world of the movie. Uh, we don't find in the futuristic outer space world of the movie Wally uh, exactly what a vision of heaven will be like, where we are saved to sit on thrones and in lazy boy chairs with a screen in front of us that we swipe and watch and sit and enjoy and ingest. That's not the biblical vision of God's kingdom that is coming. That's not what we're saved to, but whether we're saved to serve. We're saved to serve God, we're saved to serve people, we're saved to serve God in the heavenlies, we're saved to serve other people on this earth and in this life. Saved to serve. And people are saved for God's glory. People are saved for their own sakes for sure because we're loved by God, because we're valued by God, because we're treasured by God, because we are his creation, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. We are his handiwork. We are saved for our own well-being and blessing, but we're also saved for the glory of God and the pleasure of God and the delight of God. And then finally, there's what Jesus saves people from. To, for, and from. He saves people from the world, the scriptures teach. He saves people from the devil or the evil one. He saves people from themselves, ourselves. I don't know if you ever think about his salvation in that way. He saves people from condemnation. He saves people from guilt. He saves people from trouble and distress and torment and destruction, which are sometimes the byproduct or the consequence of humanity's fall. He saves people from punishment and banishment, which is the price of disobedience and rebellion and waywardness and law-breaking and oops, all of which the Bible calls sin in three little letters, and which is exactly and specifically what the angel said there here that Jesus would save people from, and which is presumably what they, we, Jesus people, most need to be saved from, sin. We don't, uh, I don't throw that word around a lot. Maybe we don't. Maybe Presbyterians don't throw that word around a lot. Some people sort of recoil. Hey, bro, it's Advent. Lights. Trees, 
Beautiful flowers. No need to rain on our parade with sin. Thank you very much. Uh, and yet it's ubiquitous in our lives. Our world, and uh, Dr. Carl, Carl Menninger wrote a book a number of years ago that's still, it's titled just as relevant today, Whatever Happened to Sin? Because we tend to discard, push aside, not want to talk about it, not want to discuss, not want to acknowledge. But you know it's there, don't you? Your neighbor knows it's there, your spouse knows it's there, your children, your parents, your friends, your coworker, your boss, the people driving around you know it's there. In the Bible, there are six different nouns in Greek in the New Testament that are variously translated sin, same six or seven different nouns and then a collection of other verbs and adjectives in Hebrew in the Old Testament for sin, it's around us, it's everywhere. Calvin, John Calvin in the 1500s described humanity as totally depraved, sin everywhere. Not vertically depraved in every way, but horizontally in everything we do, think, say, or be. It's become a part of us. Sometimes Christians get hung up or stuck on other people's sin we're good at throwing stones and pointing out other people's sinful behavior, actions, lifestyles, etc. And sometimes we, like others, are victims of other people's sin, or we experience collateral damage from other people's sin, like drunk driving, random shootings, burglary, theft, theft fraud, scams, fishing, stray bullets and on and on, harsh words. But notice for the angel and the words of the angel, the thing from which Jesus would primarily save people was their own sin. Do you see that? The angel's not so concerned about the other people's sin, which we Christians, church people, sometimes get hung up on and stuck on. The angel's concerned about their own sin. He saves, in other words, Jesus, that's what the name Jesus means. He saves, was sent to save people from their own sin, from our own sin. Ah, Merry Christmas. How does Jesus save from sin? I thought to myself, how does that happen? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus would save people from their sin? How does he do that? How does that play out? A few thoughts. He invites us, and this sort of rewinds to the Sermon on the Mount before Advent. He invites us, just an invitation, a call, yo-ho, repent. For the kingdom of the heavens is near. And scholars and theologians understand that Jesus didn't just call people to repent. In other words, to turn away from sin, which isn't that the first step to save someone from sin? Hey. Get, get out of there, come over here, get from that, stop that. Repent, change your mind, think again, think differently. He doesn't just call us, but he somehow invites us and gives us the power to do that. One is repent. What does it look like to save people from their sins, to help them repent? Second is through Jesus' teaching. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus points out all of the sin in their lives, the selfishness, the greed, the ways that people manipulate 
the scriptures, twist the scriptures in their own favor and for their own benefit. And Jesus' teaching highlights those things in a variety of ways to call attention to that and shows us a better way, a righteousness or a life or a goodness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Yes, he saves people from their sin through repentance, calling them to repentance through his teaching. And then he invites us also to pray. You remember, and this is just rewinding and things that we've talked about in previous weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And somehow in prayer, he's helping to save us as we pray. Prayer is a means or a mechanism or a way through which God saves us from sin. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Help me with this. I need help. I can't do it on my own. To fail to pray that is to leave a tool in the toolbox through which God is saving us from the destruction of sin. Number four is through his power. Again, on Friday mornings, we're reading through the book of Acts and see continuously this power that's manifest as the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people. The Holy Spirit, a.k.a. God's empowering presence, and he gives this power in random ways, and it's hard to, it's different than electricity. It's different than power lifters, muscle men. It's this intangible but God-given and Holy Spirit-driven ability to do things that a person couldn't do before or on their own. Power available to us through God's Spirit. And part of that power can be utilized to escape sin, to be freed from sin, to allow Jesus to save us from sin. I've been in communication with Mia quite a bit lately. She may be watching online this morning as uh, she tends to her husband who's been in the hospital. She's got a great story about how she walked into a church that she'd never been in before down in Redwood City, an absolute alcoholic drunk. And that God did something powerful in her life, in her heart, in her mind, in her whole person and presence that day in that chapel. She's never had a desire for alcohol again. Freed, liberated, rescued, kept safe, preserved, delivered. Jesus saves. Willard calls, talks about grace as God's action in our lives, which goes and couples together neatly with God's power. One, two, three, four. And then number five. Jesus saves by forgiving. In some streams of Christianity and some of our experiences, God's merciful forgiveness seems to be the only known way in which sin is addressed, in which Jesus saves. Which is unfortunate because there are all of these other ways in which Jesus also saves. His forgiveness is not the only means by which he saves, but it is the final word. It is the grand means of salvation. It is the way that God and Jesus clears the deck 
It's a way that he wipes everything away. It's the way that he truly rescues us in the end and in the final word and day from all of our sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us in Jesus, by Jesus. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus dies on a cross in order that our sins for which we owed a debt that we could not pay could be forgiven, paid for in him. Jesus saves. It's not the message that we're looking for at Christmas. Uh, Hobby Lobby's not talking about it. Home Depot's not talking about it. Costco's not talking about it. Target's not talking about it. They'd rather not. People don't want to go into those stores and think about sin. And yet it's all around us. We're immersed in it. We're drowning in it. Our world is. Just look around. And Jesus came little, sweet baby Jesus. Precious Jesus, mm. you can't look at the manger or the stable without knowing and seeing that this baby was born not to be a cute, cuddly, adorable, sweet little baby only, but to save and rescue us and the world from the sin that would take us down. I know it's out of fashion. I know people don't want to talk about it, especially on an individual level. Notice this, though, about what the angel says. He will save his people from their sin. And we sort of deal with individual stuff, largely as a culture today. But there's also an idea that everyone is in this big family or group or nation or people, and he's going to save us all together. Sort of this one big lump sum deal. And so the passage before us this morning invites us, among other things, to recognize our sin and to praise God for Jesus. And so our response is gratitude. Our response is praise, but another appropriate response, especially during Advent historically, is confession. It's to acknowledge, as the scriptures invite us to, to acknowledge our sin, my sin, your sin, our individual sin, but also our corporate sin, our shared sin, our sin as a local church, our sin as a denomination, our sin as the American church, our sin as a nation, the United States, our sin as the human race. And to acknowledge that because in doing so, we acknowledge we need a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so I thought I'd wrap up this morning by offering us a time of confession, another way of praying that's important. If we're going to fully appreciate and celebrate Christmas week, because there is no Christmas without the Christ, the Savior, the baby who came to save his people from their sin. Not bad news, but good news. Would you pray with me?
And I'm going to invite you this morning as we pray to speak words on your own behalf or on behalf of us as a church or a nation or a human race. The confession of our sin, which I may repeat, that God would hear it and save his people from their sin. Let's pray. God, we, uh, with eager anticipation, join with the Jewish people over centuries to wait and watch, and now to celebrate, and now to look again to the coming and glory of Jesus, Messiah, Christ, Son of God, Lord, Savior, the one who delivers us from sin. There's sin all around us, there's sin among us, there's sin between us, there's sin within us, always has been. And so we want to acknowledge that so we get right and so we're on an open channel with you. God, hear our confessions. God, we know that you hear, but so that one another that we might hear. Save us from materialism, from self-absorption, from lack of compassion, from materialism, from self-absorption, from lack of compassion, from unbelief and from fear and from apathy. Those things named here out loud and others. Save us from the sin that so easily entangles, that draws us down, that attempts to kill us the schemes of the devil. Save us, we know that you do and that you will. Rescue us, deliver us, free us, and restore to us always the joy of your salvation. May we be a people who know yet are aware of our sin and yet know that you are greater and that you are stronger and you are better and that you desire and that you intend and that you do rescue and heal May our responses be humility and gratitude 
and joy and freedom. May the name of the Lord be praised. Amen.